You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. This beautiful psalm that Josh read for us, which covers so much ground, Lord, these words that have spoken the realities of your people for thousands of years, words that have been used in worship, words that, uh, that your people have and continue to use to foster growth in our relationships with you, Lord. So God, today, as we look at this text together, may these words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Good morning, Riverside. I'm Andrew, and uh, we're going to continue our summer in the Psalms series with Psalm 27. Uh, last, week, last time I was up here, which was two weeks ago, uh, I talked about how hard it was to come up with songs to go with Psalm 13 because it was a lament and just we don't like to sing a whole lot of laments in church because we'd rather get to the happy part. Um, today, maybe as Josh was reading the text, you may have had a couple songs pop into your head just as he was reading it because this one's a little easier to come up with songs to sing with. Um, So there's that first opening stanza, right? The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Uh, Before we jump into that, though, I want to look at the overall layout of this psalm, like the the rhythm of it, before we dive in. So it's basically three sections, three large sections. The first section is about trust in the Lord, right? Yeah, I think it is. Is it up there? Doesn't look like it. No? Oh, yeah, awesome. All right. Trust in the Lord, the first, first six verses, um, there's like a little subsections, but it, it begins with trust in the Lord. Trusting in the Lord is like where we start in this psalm. It is such an important thing that we trust in the Lord. But then, after six verses of just declaring trust in the Lord, it turns to plea, it turns to desperation, it turns to, Lord, help me out here. Dude, seriously, Lord, help me out. That's, that's my... Andrew paraphrase, but that's the, that's the plea to the Lord, and then it comes back to trust in the Lord. So it's like bookends of trust at the beginning and the end with this plea in the middle, which is uh, kind of often how our prayers go, perhaps, right? We, we start out very polite, and then we get real, like what we really want and what we're really after when, we, when we're in our life with God, and then at the end we're like, okay, thanks, hope I didn't offend you, bye. Um, <laughs> reality, right? Um, in Psalm 13, it began with a lament. It began with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me forever? Uh, and then the end turns to praise. So this is kind of like the inverse of that. And some scholars have actually proposed that this was two separate psalms that were mashed together because they're so different, the first six verses and then the last eight verses. Um, I don't think that theory is necessary at all <laughs> because why can't David do both things, right? Right? Why can't David do both things? Why can't he trust in the Lord and plea to the Lord? That's life with God, isn't it? Sort of vacillating back and forth between trust and pleading. And actually, pleading can be an act of trust in itself, right? So I don't think there's any reason. The, um, there is a move in this text. The first six verses are about God. So they're in the third person where you're talking about God as he, right? God sort of in the third person. And then in verse 7, when it turns to pleading, it goes directly to second person. It goes to you. You, we're talking to God directly. You, you, 
you. The tone changes. But again, isn't that life with God? Our tone changes in our relationship with God and the way we talk to God, the way we relate to God. Uh, sometimes, sometimes in life with God, I got that peaceful, easy feeling, right? You know the song, right? And sometimes, sometimes it's a little more Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. You know that song too, right? Okay, I was going to sing them, but you get it. Um, and sometimes I experience the same, the, both of those things in the same day. Sometimes I, I experience both of those things within the same hour, right? Because life comes at you fast, does it not? Um, life with God is all-encompassing. Life with God encompasses everything that we experience in life, and some of that is really, really good, and some of that is really, really hard. But it all is with God. And we become aware of God's hand at work in the whole thing. So, Sorry, that was all preamble, and now we can dig into the psalm itself, which begins, of David. The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Who wants to sing? We will. We'll get there. We'll get there. This is confidence. This is trust. This is God is language. These things are true of the Lord. He is light. He is salvation. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. Light and salvation together go together through all throughout Scripture, especially in the life of Jesus, light and salvation. You think of John's gospel, right? The darkness has not overcome it. The light of the world has come. Stronghold, though, is a little bit more of like a military term, right? We think about a stronghold as a place of safety, a place where no enemies can get in, right? That's what a stronghold is. And if all of these things are true, that the Lord is light, that the Lord is salvation, that the Lord is my stronghold, then why would I fear anything? And I suppose it's possible that those questions, whom shall I fear and of whom shall I be afraid, are real, actual questions, that they're not rhetorical but I'm pretty sure the implied answer to of whom shall I fear and of whom shall I be afraid is no one, right? We get that? No one. But the next section gives us a little bit of insight as to who maybe theoretically we might be afraid of. Verse 2, when the wicked advance against me to devour me, Ooh. it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. So there's wicked ones, there's enemies, foes, armies in most circumstances would make someone afraid, right? If you got enemies, foes, adversaries coming at you, it would generally make us afraid. But David is steadfast. He says, my heart will not fear. I will be confident. He is confident that it is not he, but his enemies who are outmatched. Maybe you've been blessed to have an experience kind of like this. Where circumstances were bad, tough, didn't look good. People were gunning for you. You seemed overmatched and not up to the task. But somehow, someway, the Lord gave you that thing that maybe you prayed for, maybe you asked for, maybe you've prayed for a hundred thousand times. And that is a peace that passes understanding. You know that phrase? A peace that passes understanding because... Well, sometimes peace befuddles us. Like, how could I be at peace in this moment? There's a war going on around me. 
either literally or figuratively, right? There's a war going on around me, and somehow I'm at peace. I don't understand that. But guess what? In the words of Jeff Walker, I receive that blessing. Yeah. It's good. Um, that calm in the midst of the storm is a gift from God. And one that David is describing beautifully here, and it doesn't happen every time, but when it does, it's a manifestation of God's grace, right? To have that peace in the midst of the storm. All right, in the next section, on to verse, verses four through six. One thing I ask from the Lord, and only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in my dwelling, in his dwelling, sorry. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. So now David's reflections have moved from the battlefield, strongholds, and enemies to the sanctuary to church, or in his words, the temple. He's felt God's presence while enemies surround, and now he just wants to be in God's presence, period. And maybe his enemies could maybe just go somewhere else for a change. That'd be nice, right? You may be familiar with some of the history, but David is the one who was dissatisfied with the tabernacle, the tent of the Lord, right? He thought it was a travesty that kings lived in mansions while God lived in a tent. We can kind of see his point. And you can see in the words of Psalm 27, David longing for a house that communicates God's beauty, where he can really experience God's beauty in the house of the Lord, in the place that he dwells. And it's pretty clear from the way David uses words that he cares about aesthetics and beauty, maybe more than most of us do. He's a, he's a true artist at heart, right? He longs to gaze at the Lord, the Lord's beauty in the place where he dwells. Um, these verses will connect with people, maybe some of you, who really love this aspect of life with God. Gathered worship, being together in God's sanctuary, being in the place where you know like, you're in community with God's people and you are together and you're reflecting on God and his goodness. Yes. Worshiping, resting, and soaking in the presence of the Lord. But verse 6 then returns to the enemies. My head will be exalted above the enemies that surround me. Um, and it gets at that really unique combination of warrior and worship leader that David embodies, right? And the warrior was part of the reason that he wasn't actually able to build that temple for the Lord, right? Because he had too much blood on his hands. It's a picture of the Lord exalting David above his enemies, but not to gloat, but just to sing and to make music and shout with joy to the Lord. It's clearly a longing of David's heart, communicated again and again in Scripture, to amplify and celebrate God for who he is and for what he does, and specifically for what he has done for us. The ways he has acted in history, in this world, in space and time, to give us life, to give us gifts, to give us love, to give us mercy. Okay, now we're going to move to verse 7. And as I mentioned, we're moving now from the third person. David is exalting about God and about the Lord, saying, exalting his goodness. And now we're talking directly to the Lord. 
Moving to second person, you, God. So notice that shift. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God, my Savior. Whenever we come across one of these like, beautiful onslaughts of words, because I feel like there's just so much here to, to unpack, I like to pay attention to the verbs, right? So they're highlighted for you here, right? Hear, be merciful, answer, do not hide, do not turn, do not reject or forsake. These are pleas to the Lord, and they're verbs that are like connected to each other. Do you see how they're connected to each other? Hear, Lord, hear me, be merciful to me, answer me, do not hide from me, do not turn from me, do not reject me, do not forsake me. Every one of these verbs is begging God to hang in there, to hang in with me, to stay in my presence. David's asking him, can you just, can you stay here with me? Can you stay in this with me? Don't reject me. Don't forsake me. Can, and can you allow me, can you give me the strength to stay right here in your presence, Lord? This is David's heart. And speaking of David's heart, I want to sit with verse 8 for a minute. I love these glimpses into the in, internal dialogue of God's people. Um, see verse 8 specifically. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. It's like this conversation that David is having with himself. It reminds me of a teacher I had in high school who would always say, and then I said to myself, self? And everybody you know, gets a laugh every time, so they keep saying it. Um, I love how David speaks with such clarity, though, about what his heart is saying and what conversation he is having within himself about God. Um, a lot of people like to quote Jeremiah's words about the heart. I don't know if you've heard this, that the heart is deceitful above all things, right? That's in Scripture, and it is true because it is in Scripture. But we also need to read each Scripture in the context of all of Scripture. And deceitfulness is clearly not the last and only word on the human heart, right? It's not the only thing that the Bible says about the heart. Because what David describes here is no deceitful heart. His heart is exclaiming, demanding, and shouting wisdom to David. Seek the face of the Lord. His heart is crying out, seek, seek the Lord's face. That's not deception, is it? No, seek the Lord's face. If somebody's telling you to seek the Lord's face, that is not a deceptive word. That is sage advice. The heart can be deceitful. The mind can be deceitful. The body can be deceitful. But the heart can also be a place, and it can be the very place where we connect with God. Right? Not the only place, but it can be that place where we connect with God. And it certainly was true for David. On to verse 10. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. For false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. Back in verse 9, David asked the Lord, Do not forsake me. Do not forsake me. And then we see in verse 10, an experience of forsakenness from those that he trusted, his mother, his mother and father, right? Do not forsake me, though my father and mother forsake me. 
David here points out this beautiful way in which the Lord can redeem the role of parents in our lives. Okay? That no matter how broken or fractured or filled with sadnesses our experiences may be with our parents, with our earthly parents, in this concise way, the Lord retells and redeems the parenting story. Right? Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The Lord will actually do the job that no person could fully do. The Lord will receive me. So that first verb is forsake, but then you notice that all the verbs after forsake are like the opposite of forsake, right? Do not forsake me. Though my father, mother, father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me, teach me, lead me. Do not turn away from me. I wonder if Jesus had something like Psalm 27, 12 in mind when he taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Certainly a connection there, right? Do not turn me over to the desires of my foes. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And now we get to the coda. That's what I'm calling it the coda, the last two verses of this, verses 13 and 14. I remain confident in this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. After all this wrestling, David ends with trust and patience. Trust and patience. And the trust is real and, and specific. David is not just confident that he will see the Lord, which he is confident in that, but he is confident that he will see the goodness of the Lord. Right? Not just Lord, but I want, I'm going to see the Lord being good, actively being good, that his goodness will shine through his actions, that the Lord will do something to bring goodness, that the Lord will act, that the Lord will be present in specific and tangible ways that his enemies will not overtake him, that they will not take his life, but he will indeed see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, where he is still alive. These are confident words of trust in the Lord. When I think about trust, it's really hard for me to pass on an opportunity to tell a story about Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, heard of her? Well known for her acts of mercy and self-giving acts of service, right? Very well known for that. Also deeply wise. Not surprising, right? Um, Brennan Manning tells a story in his book, Ruthless Trust, about an ethicist named John Kavanaugh. Don't know who he is, but he's an ethicist and got named in the book. Traveled to Calcutta to meet Mother Teresa to find some clarity in his life. Some clear-headed thinking about where he was going. And on that trip, he finds the opportunity to meet Mother Teresa, and he asks her to pray for him. And she replies, how can I pray for you? And he, rep he responds, I'd like you to pray for clarity. And she replies, no. I will not pray for clarity. I will pray that you trust God.
I will not pray for clarity. I will pray that you trust God. That's the wisdom of a woman who fully immersed herself in a life of cloudy, murky, dirty, dusty earth and humanity. And she did not have the luxury of clarity. Right? She did not have those encouraging moments of watching so many of the people that she worked with be healed to take up their mat and walk. Often they never did. Most of the time they never did. She witnessed a lot more suffering than victory. More pain than most of us could handle. More pain than I could handle. But trust isn't built on circumstances. Trust is built on character. I don't trust Marcy, my wife, more than anyone on this earth because she has world-class medical training or survival skills or expert-level competence in multiple fields. I mean, she's pretty awesome, and she can do a lot of great stuff. But I trust her because of her character, okay? Because I know her. I trust her because I've, I've seen her be trustworthy, I trust her because I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that she, also, she has my and our best interest in mind. And sometimes we fly by the seat of our pants, but we fly by the seat of our pants together because we trust each other, right? This is how trust works. When the psalm says, I will remain confident in this, I will see the goodness of the Lord. That is trust that the Lord is good, that the Lord is trustworthy, and that we may not know what the next step or the next season will look like. We may not have all that clarity that we often really, 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 really would like. But we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the Lord will continue to be faithful. This kind of trust, and only this kind of trust, allows us to really lean into verse 14, which is a really hard one. It sounds good, but it's actually really hard. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Waiting is not fun. Agreed? Waiting is not fun. It's even worse when there's unreliable or unpredictable variables at play. Waiting in a line if we're not 100% sure we're in the right line. You ever been in one of those crowds where you're like, I'm not actually sure, and if I waste an hour of my life in this line and it's not even the right line, I'm going to lose my mind. I'm not speaking from experience, but... <laughs> or waiting, waiting in line for something that we really have to do, but we really, really don't want to do, and it's taking much longer than we would like it to do because we'd really like to get on with our lives. You know what I'm talking about? Waiting for a time-sensitive piece of mail to arrive maybe a passport and you're about to head out of the country on a trip to Mexico with your church, something like that. Not 100% confident in the tracking system through which it was sent, okay? We don't like waiting, right? But more seriously, waiting for prayers to be answered, for healing to come, for a dark night of our souls to pass, to be able to find peace and joy once again, Waiting for that, it's hard. It's really hard. More than the inconvenience of lines at the DMV. Waiting on the Lord 
when anchored in deep trust, is a beautiful thing. A hard thing, but a beautiful thing. That line, be strong, take heart. Wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart. It echoes the words of Joshua chapter 1, where Moses gives Joshua these words multiple times. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. I mean, he's about to take over leading all of Israel. And Moses' words to him are, be strong and courageous. Just like David's words, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart. Be courageous. The same words apply to us as we lean into the spiritual practice of waiting for the Lord. I think it is a spiritual practice. To really wait for the Lord, though, requires us to be strong and courageous. And to really trust in the Lord. If we don't really trust that the Lord's going to act, we're not going to be patient, are we? We're going to take matters into our own hands. At least I am. If I really don't think God's going to do anything, I can skip the wait. I can skip the line. Get in a different line. Psalm 27, if we really lean into it with our whole selves, I think teaches us to be resilient. Really resilient. And I think a good helping of trust combined with a strong dose of patience is a reliable recipe for resilience, right? If we have those two things, if we, if we trust that the Lord is going to do something, and if we're patient enough to let him do that, that allows us to be resilient people, to be able to keep going even when it gets hard, to be able to push through, to persevere, even when it doesn't look like it's going to have a happy ending. In an age of deception, untruth, and anxiety, you experience some of those things every once in a while? You hear untruths, you hear deception, experience some anxiety. We need this depth of resilient faith perhaps more than we realize. I know, I need it more than I realize. So do we trust? Will we wait? And if we if we really practice Psalm 27 together, and I think we can practice this psalm together, and we can practice any of these psalms, I think we have a shot. We have a shot at a faith that is resilient, that can handle some challenges, and some significant ones. It can handle waiting. Waiting. Be strong. Take heart and wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being more trustworthy than we can imagine. Lord, you keep your promises. You are always the light. You are always our salvation. You are always our stronghold. And you never ask us to wait in vain. You are always working, always moving. Not always in the way we would prefer, but you are always at work. So Lord, today as we seek to be the type of people who wait,
faithfully, who wait trustfully, who wait with anticipation, knowing that you will move, you will act. Lord, build us up. Build up our faith, build up our resilience that we might not give up on you when it feels like we've waited too long. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to your table, nourish us with the type of faith and trust that can be endlessly patient, that can truly wait for the Lord, that strong, that courageous act of patience. And as we seek to live into that, as we seek to be that kind of people, we pray the words your son Jesus taught us. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church. 